Look at yesterday. Look at all this crap that's going on. But we keep marching forward. We just keep going. And somehow it all works out. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Donald Trump was once again an aggrieved and resentful winner last week. He held Nikki Haley off in New Hampshire with a strong victory in the overall vote, but he spent the week fulminating about Haley's decision not to throw in the towel, as well as the defamation trial in New York brought by E. Jean Carroll, which ended with his being slapped with an $83.3 million combined compensatory and punitive damages award for his repeated denials of Carroll's accusations. The margin in New Hampshire of 11 percentage points was enough for Haley to claim rights to soldier on, even as Governor Ron DeSantis packed up and went home. Haley is positioning herself as the general election alternative to Trump chaos and bitterness, an impression Trump reinforced by announcing that anyone who contributed to Haley's campaign would be banished from the MAGA movement. It's not easy to formulate a path to victory for Haley, who figures to rack up a series of losses, including in what she called her sweet home state of South Carolina on February 24th. But her sticking around complicates Trump's own path and arguably aids Biden in the interim, given Trump's anticipated responses of savaging a woman candidate. And it also plays the long odds of a possible disastrous legal development or a new bout of verbal incontinence from the former president. The relationship between Trump's march to the nomination and his minefield-ridden legal landscape is complicated. But there's no doubt that Trump took it soundly on the chin with the significant loss in the Carroll case and its reaffirmation of his history as a sexual predator. On the flip side were a series of stray developments that all in all reduced the likelihood of an imminent conviction on any of the 91 criminal counts Trump currently is facing. To analyze whether it is all over but the complaining, insulting, and lying, and to consider where Trump's electoral successes leave him in his quest to elude criminal liability, we welcome three great veteran observers of the political scene, all returning guests to Talking Feds. And they are... Senator Barbara Boxer, a former U.S. Congresswoman and Senator from California. She was in Congress from 1983 to 2017, where she gained a reputation as one of Congress's most stalwart progressive members. Before then, she was on the Marin County Board of Supervisors and was the first female president of the board. Her memoir, The Art of Tough, Fearlessly Facing Politics and Life, is available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, Senator, for being with us. I always love to be on your show. David Jolly, who represented Florida's 13th district in Congress from 2014 to 2017, and really before then held virtually every position in Congress from intern to member, and now has worked outside of Congress as an attorney and political consultant and a policy analyst for MSNBC. Thank you so much, David, for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. Great to be with you. And really honored to introduce Lawrence O'Donnell, who is, as everyone knows, the host of MSNBC's The Last Word. He was, people may not be aware, formerly uh, very involved in Congress himself as the chief of staff for both the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance and the Committee on Environment and Public Works. He's an actor, has been executive producer of the television shows The West Wing and Mr. Sterling. He's the author of two books, and I really personally recommend Deadly Force, A Public Shooting, and My Family's Search for the Truth, which is a fantastic story, very well told. And also, I just saw, uh, am I right, Lawrence, that you're going to be doing something on all this Trump folly? Probably shouldn't call it folly at the 92nd Street Y very soon. Yeah, it's Andrew Weissman and then Neil Cartier, I think. And I'm just going to introduce them and let them talk. I believe that's my job. Gotcha. Well, they do that well. I've heard of those guys. All right. So let's start with Donald Trump's 
decisive, if not quite overwhelming, win in New Hampshire. He beats Nikki Haley by 11 points. He wins across nearly every demographic group, including women, including non-white voters. But in the aftermath, a lot of analysts were saying that he underperformed. I wonder what's your view on that question, given expectations, how did Trump do? Well, I'll jump in. I mean, essentially, he's running as an incumbent. And everybody treats him like he's not, but he is running like an incumbent. So if an incumbent does that badly, it's not so great. And the last point I'd make is, I mean, he's in trouble with uh, independent voters and he can't quit Nikki Haley. And what that means is he runs around calling her a bird brain and anyone who's won any election at all or anyone who has worked in politics, as all of your guests have done one or the other, you know, at the end of the day, you need your opponent's votes. So I think he's in a world of trouble. That's not wishful thinking because he scares the hell out of me. But I think he's in a world of trouble. I think the senator is exactly right. You know, I look at Iowa and New Hampshire and I say, please continue to listen to this podcast and get your news on great shows like Lawrence's Last Word. However, this Republican primary is over. The stat coming out of New Hampshire that really mattered. The whole nomination process, not just the primary. The whole nomination's over. Three out of four Republican voters in New Hampshire voted for Donald Trump. Seven out of 10 of Nikki Haley's voters weren't registered Republicans. Do the math, move it to South Carolina and other states. Donald Trump has full control, not just of the party, but of the movement that is fueling the party. I think to the senator's point, the, the critical question where Donald Trump really has to shore up and do some work between now and November is where do those Nikki Haley voters go, right? Because it could be as simple as the news in the E. Jean Carroll case that reminds those voters, I'm not going back to Donald Trump. I just can't take any more of it. And the 6 to 8% of the voters that are going to determine the election in November, they can be persuaded on a lot of different things. It may just be, who do I want to have a beer with? It may just be, do I feel good about the economy? But it may also be, I can't stand Donald Trump. And he either needs to shore them up on a, his economic populism, or he needs to address that issue of those voters that are just fatigued with Donald Trump. And I think it is more than just the 25% Haley voters in New Hampshire. The persuadables can be independents, Democrats, Republicans. But I think it, it's easy to ask the question, where do those 25% of registered Republicans in New Hampshire go when Donald Trump ultimately gets the nomination? I think it's a bit of an unknown. And by the way, a couple quick follow-up points, just facts on that. The first is the numbers, as the Senator and David emphasize, are pretty reminiscent of two uh, first-term presidents that lost the numbers of independents going against them, uh, that being George Herbert Walker Bush, Ford against Reagan, and also very good economic news more this morning, even though it doesn't seem to have hit home so far. Let me follow up with Nikki Haley and ask. So first, he plays it cool that night. He says, oh, I don't get mad, I get even. And then more and more each day, he's raged obsessively against her. He says anyone who contributes to her campaign would be permanently barred from the MAGA camp taking the senator's point to heart and the need that at some point to appeal to those voters, what's going on with him? Is it just the sort of normal Trump dyspepsia? Can I use a big word there? Or uh, or something more extreme? Well, let's begin with what is probably his most amusing campaign lie of the year, which is if you contribute to Nikki Haley today, if you give her one penny after New Hampshire— I will never take your money. Donald Trump will take your money for the rest <laughs> of his life. He will never stop. He, he'll never stop asking you for money. He's trying to aim that comment at the big donors, you know. And so imagine the moment six months from now when a big donor who was a Haley donor all the way says, hey, Donald, I want to give you a million dollars for your campaign. I want to give you a million dollars for your legal defense fund. And Donald's going to go, oh, no, absolutely not. You know, you're with Haley. So <laughs> you're it, dead to me. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump emails me for money. Okay. So so there's there's no possibility of him ever turning down anyone's money. He had a chance, as victory speeches are very special chances, very special chances for the winners to reach 
out to say something to the voters who didn't vote for them. And I have never seen a winner in a victory speech not do that until Donald Trump became a political candidate. He's the only one in history who has decided that the victory speech is for gloating and handing the microphone to losers from Iowa and elsewhere on the campaign trail who've already dropped out and pledged their fealty to you. I mean, he literally ran out of material. There's Donald Trump, comes out on top in the New Hampshire primary. And here's his, what is his victory speech? He hands the microphone to these other guys because he's run out of material. It was like watching a stand-up run out of material on stage. Mm -hmm. And he's actually been repeating himself quite a bit. This we'll get to this in a moment. But let's can we stick with, with Haley for a moment and and follow up on what David said that it's over, but she wants to soldier on. I mean, normally uh, one presumes she's just going to get shellacked starting in her home sweet state as she called it of South Carolina, but her agenda is a little bit different. It's not to come out on top perhaps, but to hang in there until something bad happens to him, either of, you know, continuing cognitive slips or some kind of conviction, something that's a game changer, not of her doing. First, is that accurate about her thinking? And is that a tenable uh, strategy? Hey, let me say this. I don't know what her strategy is. Maybe she wants to write a book, the only person left standing against a crazy person. I don't know. But let me say this. As someone who's for Joe Biden, I love, love, love this. I want to tell you why. Women are watching. Women are watching. Everything's on the line for us. And everyone on this call knows the, the impact of the Dobbs case, which whatever your personal views are, I don't want um, you know Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell telling my daughters and my granddaughters what to do. And the vast majority of women agree with that. But the way he is treating her, he is insane. He ought to treat her with respect. And he doesn't even know who she is. He mixes her up with Nancy Pelosi, for goodness sake. So I think women are watching. The fact is he's calling her names, including, I said before, bird brain, which is unreal. First of all, he shouldn't talk about the brain because he's got a lot of problems in that regard. Insulting her wardrobe, right? Yes. As a woman, he's taking on her dress because... He's implying it's not expensive enough. So I say to former Governor Haley, I don't agree with you. I think you were too timid with him all the way. I think the way you would answer the abortion issue is awful. And the way you said you'd vote for Trump is awful. But hang in there because you're you're bringing out the worst in this guy. And just in case people haven't noticed, he cannot quit her and he is going nuts. And it's just another opportunity to look at the real Donald Trump. In theory, we're told that both the White House and Trump want to turn to the general election. But I think there's a lot to be said for the senator's point. I think for Haley, DeSantis, maybe Pence and others, there were kind of three strategies baked in their decision to run for president. One is that the party was past Donald Trump, or possibly Trump wouldn't even run again, but the party was somehow past Donald Trump. The party itself had fatigue. That didn't turn out to be true. The second was that all the indictments would change voters' minds. It actually had the opposite effect, as we've seen. The indictments really fueled the base. And then the third was a, a delegate slog, right? And, and that was largely going to be a bit of the DeSantis approach. And maybe now Haley as well is thinking a delegate slog. Make it through as many states as possible. Gobble up as many delegates as you can. The problem is to win a delegate slog, you actually have to win some states. And there are very critical states you can't lose because it's a winner-take-all. And so the math in the delegate slog isn't there for Haley, which then leaves you with this, this question. Is she just hanging on? And did others think they could hang on in case there's a conviction or something that gets him off the ballot? They want to be there standing. Even under the rules, though, I don't think the convention would give the the nomination to the last person standing but for Trump. So I, I really question Haley standing in. Yes, it exposes all of the, the failings of Donald Trump. I just shared with Chris Jansing, take the Eugene Carroll case. Even for Donald Trump, victim shaming a victim of sexual assault is off message. Just there are certain things in politics, even for Trump, you don't do. But I really wonder for Nikki Haley making it all the way to South Carolina. 
I know she thinks that these four weeks will be an opportunity for her to retool, raise money, maybe a little easy. I think the Trump camp is going to go vicious, vicious on Haley on TV in South Carolina, in her home state. And I really question her decision to stay in. And look, in Florida in 16, Jeb Bush dropped out because he didn't want to take the beating. Marco stayed in. And Donald Trump destroyed Marco, destroyed him. I don't think Marco won a single state. Haley's obviously made that decision to stick in it, but I'm not sure South Carolina is going to be so sweet for her. Although you, it does sound as if you think in terms of Biden and in terms of exposing one very bad side of Trump, you agree with the senator. There's, there's some upside to Biden that she stick around for a bit, yeah? Yeah, I think anytime he's attacking someone or playing victim or deep state, he's losing that six to eight percent he needs. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, the Republicans always put a name up for Boston City Council. And there's about nine Boston City Councilors, right? And they're all all Democrats. Right. There'd be a Republican in every slot, just in case. You know, heart attack. Literally, right. just in case he had a heart attack. Or in those days, which doesn't matter to Republican voters, got arrested, right? It's just like, well, okay, then Saltonstall will become a, a city councilor. Peter Torkelson, whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, it, but it costs nothing to do that, you know? And, and the trouble for Nikki Haley to simply stay in, as we all know, is just how expensive it is in money. And then there's this question about what does it do to her political capital? Is it improved or hurt by staying in? And if this were another party reigned by sanity, I could give you an answer to that. But in this one, I can't because I'm starting to develop the theory that the best thing for Haley right now is with Trump voters. The thing that will appeal to Trump voters the most is the harder she hits Donald Trump. Not that they're going to accept her hits, but they're going to go, oh, Okay, so she's tough. Because what do they admire? If you're trying to get to the generic of what they admire, it's this version of toughness that they imagine is Donald Trump. And she's showing, I think, even more so than Chris Christie did, uh, because she was also able to get votes along with it, that she can really punch Donald Trump and she's not afraid of him at all. Would these Republican voters four years from now in primaries be looking only for a candidate? who was afraid of Donald Trump, who absolutely proved how afraid of Donald Trump they are? <laughs> or, you know, might she be building some kind of political capital in the future with these same voters who were voting for the other guy? Yeah, it's an interesting question for her because probably in contrast to, say, Chris Christie, she's got a future. And, you know, right now it's it ain't going to be with the Trumpist wing if his, unless he calls off the fatwa, you know, she'll never be involved in any kind of Trump government. There's a disconnect, however, because her claim is she's got the better shot in the general because of all the chaos, as she gently puts it. And polling seems to bear that out. And yet Trump voters said in exit polls that they think that Trump is more likely to beat Biden. So it seems to be another aspect advantaging Trump where the facts are against him, but the perception, at least of his cadre of uh, stalwarts is with him. But, you know, most primary voters are voting for the person who they think will be best in the general. And there's historically tremendous disagreements about that. I mean, I personally thought Bill Bradley would be better in the general than Al Gore. I, I thought Gary Hart would be better in the general than Walter Mondale, you know? And so frequently you end up with a nominee where a very significant number of the primary voters thought someone else uh, would have been better. Then you go on with that. And so my personal bet is that Haley would be better in the general election. I, my guess is she's right about that. If I could just say, um, look, this is the Trump party. And David Jolly knows better than all of us because he was in that party and maybe still is and hoping that they'll change. No, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm sticking up for David here. He's he's uh, they made it impossible. They gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. He's out. <laughs> this is my five, six year anniversary, Senator, of being gone from it. So I'm liberated. <laughs> that was a brave thing. And I've said from the beginning of this whole Trump movement, this frightening movement, and we 
you know, we make jokes and all the rest, but it at its heart, it's really scary stuff. People like David are the ones that are saving us if, if we're to be saved, if I could say that. And I mean that with all my heart. But I would say, here's where we are. So Trump owns the base of the party. There, there isn't any question about it. And what I like about Nikki Haley staying in it as a Democrat, I'm admitting that as a Biden person, I'm admitting that is she brings out who Trump really is. And, you know, when David talked about her and when you did, you spoke with compassion about her. Gee, is it going to hurt her? Is it going to this? And, you know, that's up to her. She may have a lot of other ideas of what she wants to do in her life, because I could tell you there's a lot out there, and David can too, besides being an elected life. But he owns the party. But I just looked at these numbers, and I bet you Lawrence knows this up and down. I I hope that I just got the most recent. In the country, 38.7% are registered Democrats of all the voters, 38.7. 29.4% are registered Republicans, and 28 are independent, and the rest are minor parties. So that's why when I looked at these numbers, even from, not from Iowa as much as New Hampshire, because in New Hampshire, you could see how many independent voters uh, voted. Look, when I ran, and and Lawrence remembers this, because I remember, Lawrence, when I went to see if I could get his help getting on Moynihan's committee, which I never got on that great committee. (laughs) But Lawrence remembers the times in California when we didn't have this open primary, which we have now with the top two. Everyone votes. It's a whole crazy thing. When I ran, I had to win, you know, over the base voters in the Democratic primary. And it's hard to do that. And you do that. But when you're in a tough primary, you don't win all of them. So you got to be kind to your opponents, at least not get everyone so alienated. And then you have to continually romance the independent voters because without them, I never would have won. So just in my early days when this state was really purple leaning red and I won with Diane all those years ago in 92, the only reason I won besides Anita Hill, which I, I give her all the credit, when you look at the numbers is that I held 90% of the Democrats, I got about 12% of Republicans, and I won among independents. And that's the way it goes. So again, since we're talking about Nikki Haley this entire time, I don't know what's in her future, but boy, I'm glad she's (laughs) hanging in there. And I may be the only one on the call that feels that way. Stay in there, Nikki Haley, because you're bringing out the truth about Donald Trump. And the truth is, He's an abomination. I definitely agree. Uh, You know, I asked the other night on TV this question on election night. What does the Biden-Harris campaign really want? You know, do they really want Donald Trump isolated now so they can go one-on-one and really get voters used to the idea that this is really the choice? Or do they want Nikki Haley to continue to be out there hitting Donald Trump? And and the answer from Jen Palmieri, who worked on presidential campaigns, was they want both. And so I got to say, you talk about surrogates, you know, like the campaigns want to send surrogates to to my show uh, at all shows. And it's like, well, I think the best Biden campaign surrogate out there right now is Nikki Haley. (laughs) I mean, I do think your vantage point of let's think about the six to eight percent and is Haley's continued presence likely to erode a little bit there? I, from that vantage point, it does seem like a good move for the White House. Importantly, those six to eight are what we would call persuadable. They might be Republican, they might be independent, they might be Democratic. But I think both the senator and Lawrence's points build to this, which is, and the senator used the term 90%, one rule of electoral politics that has remarkably held true as every other rule has been shattered For several decades, the 90% rule has really held true. In most elections, you've got to win 90 plus percent of your own party. If you start to lose into double digits, you're done. And both parties know that. And that goes back to this original question we started on at the top of the show. Where does the Nikki Haley voter go? Where does the Nikki Haley Republican voter go? Do they all come home? Or are there enough that Donald Trump is performing in the high 80s among Republicans? Because if so, notwithstanding electoral college math, but nationally, it's a good night for Joe Biden. That's an excellent point. You talked about, David, how expensive it is for her to hang on. And it's kind of 
embarrassing if she gets shellacked in South Carolina. Where is the money going now after Trump's saber rattling? Her PAC got some contributions before, pretty substantial, as did DeSantis. But Trump has issued this kind of fatwa. And you see big money people now, in, like Jamie Dimon, endorsing Trump. Will the spigot be drying up for everyone but Trump now on the Republican side? Well, Haley wouldn't stay in if she couldn't afford it. I mean, another axiom that's true is you don't drop out because you lost. You drop out because you ran out of money. She knows she can make it to South Carolina. There are sufficient donors. Given the expectation that she loses her home state by 40 or 50 points, I think Lawrence's point earlier is an important one. When Donald Trump says nobody else give to Nikki Haley, the donors aren't really going to follow his admonition. It's just going to cost them more when they make up with Donald Trump. Right. So Lauren said that if Trump calls and asks for a million dollars, he'll get it. He'll actually say it was going to be a million. But because you stuck with Haley, now it's five million and he'll get his five million. So there's enough fuel for Haley to hang on. But all the money's going to the party. And listen, in 16, I was still a city member and running for reelection, didn't endorse Donald Trump. My donors in 16 knew that. So most of my donors didn't give to Donald Trump either, particularly some really big ones. However, when he won. They all wrote big checks for the inauguration committee. They all wrote big checks for the party. They were there. And the Haley donors will be there for Trump. And as Lauren said, he'll take their money. Yeah. And David, it'll be the perfect phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, then let's go to the other thing that seems to be booing him up in a way. Again, focusing on the six to eight percent. Bill Crystal was on last week and he said, you know, we're not going to get a Nuremberg trial where things are destroyed. And when the party is reconstructed from the embers, they won't look to folks like us. They'll look to folks like Scott and others who have a plausible case of having kind of been at least on the sidelines. But what do you think about these endorsements? 177 members have come in in his support in the Supreme Court case taking a step back and making the point that the senator started with about what a you know dangerous high stakes election this is and and how what a pernicious president he's been and would be what do you make of pretty respectable political figures like Scott and I think he's going to have a lot of company coming out and and basically saying eh, January 6th wasn't great but his policies or, or whatever you know d- does that in fact tell the 6 to 8% it's safe to, to vote for Donald Trump? Well, it depends how it goes down. I mean, 177 cowards, they're so afraid of Donald Trump, more afraid than they were on January 6th when they ran for their lives. And I think to a great extent, it's messaging around that. Josh Hawley is an example. He saluted these uh, insurrectionists then he ran away from them. We saw him literally running for his life. Oh, yes, right? yeah. caught on tape. And then he writes a book on masculinity after he ran for his life. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. And if I could say Tim Scott, who I served with, nice man, totally, totally looked so bad on that endorsement where Trump says to him from the dais, turns to him and says, oh, Nikki Haley after you endorse me, she must really hate you. And she made you a U.S. senator. How embarrassing to do that. And all he could think of doing, instead of coming forward and saying, I don't hate anybody. I will always respect her for appointing me. Thank you, Nikki Haley. But this is the president. He comes up and kisses the boot even more and says, I love you. Literally. The L word. I mean, seriously, he's threatening Kim Jong Un. You know, <laughs> hard to know if it's worse to be his friend or his enemy. It's so true that there's nothing uglier than watching that parade that happened in 2016, where you know Lindsey Graham is saying every accurate adjective there is about Donald Trump and how awful he is and how bad it would be for the Republican Party, and then of course. He ends up loving him. Same thing with, you know, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. I mean, and the stuff he said about Cruz involving Cruz's wife, Cruz's father, all this stuff was more than he even tried to say about anybody else. And then Cruz gets in there and worships him. And it was never like that. If if anybody got really, really nasty against somebody in a primary, 
they did not shake hands and make up and be pals. You know, it didn't work that way. I'd give you one observation on that and follow Lawrence's retelling of 16, because where we end up is, I think, a great concern about the rise of authoritarianism and the cementing of this movement with Donald Trump. And it's this, you know, in 2016, it took a while for Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio and others to come around and actually endorse Donald Trump. Paul Ryan, the day Trump secures the nomination, I think, coming out of Indiana, Paul Ryan says, I'm not there yet. McConnell and others, even voters, Republican super voters were saying, should I vote for Hillary Clinton? There was this latency to them coming around. By 2020, I think we saw this informed negotiation where even protagonists like Adam Kinzinger voted for Donald Trump because they saw the partisan benefits and they fell in line. What we see coming out of Iowa, New Hampshire, these quick endorsements by DeSantis, Scott, and others, the reception of the message that the 2020 election was fraud when 60% plus in Iowa now agree with that, Donald Trump has completely tamed the party and tamed the movement. There's no blurring now. Everybody's in line. So does that help him in November? We'll see. But I think it gives rise to great concern on the broader question of this anti-democratic rise of authoritarianism under Trump's brand. The, the movement is now firmly in his grasp, and he has tamed the party that he once just used as a vehicle for his rise. Now it's his. He owns it. I think it's such a great point, and it's nauseating to me here, putting to the side my moderator guys, because it, there's no way to endorse him without saying, eh, you know, yeah, so he tried to resist the peaceful transfer of power, you know, it's kind of like good enough for government work, you know, to be able just to spout though an endorsement for Donald Trump means you're discounting this cataclysmic event so far down and you empower others, including perhaps in the six to eight percent to somehow have this view. One of the most stunning findings in the exit polling was an increasing number of Trump voters, now up to 75%, believe that the election was rigged and have basically fastened on to the whole idea that he's never abandoned, even as people tell him, oh, you're, you keep going back to the past, but it's his number one grievance, and it somehow is breathing life into his uh, campaign, notwithstanding the conventional wisdom. Hey, Harry. You notice how safe and secure the elections are so far since Donald Trump won his primary. <laughs> right. He hasn't yeah. made one sound of any problem. I guess New Hampshire was, was a clean one at this time. There yeah, you right. go. Oh, it's perfect when he wins. But I, I just want to make one point none of us should ever overlook. Remember, he's telling us what he's going to do. I mean, he's telling us, I will be a dictator only on day one. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you declare martial law on day one, that's the end of democracy. So this, with all of the joking and all of the stuff we see that we can hardly believe is going on, we have to listen to what he says. And I'd love to see an ad that just shows in his own words what he's going to do, how proud he is of ending Roe, and all the things in his own words. But I'm sure that Biden people are busy at work on that. And actually, former Republicans like Project Lincoln and let's take up another aspect of this. And I don't mean this in a kind of ha-ha lampooning way, but these, you could call them gaffes, but they're really, to me, moments of just truly impaired cognition, that whole thing with Nikki Haley and some of his other gaffes. Not a week goes by without what seems like a pretty serious cognitive blunder by Trump. Let's just say that continues you know, the other tags on him seem to be matters of indifference to his base, but they're all consistent with his being the big winner. This seems kind of serious to me, the doddering candidate. I think that's one of the reasons he basically didn't testify in the Eugene Carroll case or, you know, did it for 90 seconds. Is that a real risk for him in the way that so far, at least, the indictments have proven not to be? It feels like it's starting to attach. The Biden-Harris campaign do tweets about this almost on a daily basis. And Nikki Haley has been doing a fantastic job of it. She's all over it, right? Her method always has to include Joe Biden in the same sentence. But to have a Republican attacking you know, Donald Trump's neurological function at that level, I think is very useful. And 
and will at some point start to attach? I think it's attached already, but will it attach to the point where it actually affects votes in the right spots in the Electoral College? You know, who knows? I'd add to that, Harry, and say you kind of have to get deep into the cross tabs, and we probably won't know until November. But, you know, if you consider that every election is about the contrast between the candidates, do I like the economy under Joe Biden or under Donald Trump? What about the question of Roe and Dobbs and reproductive freedom? Do I prefer Donald Trump or do I prefer Joe Biden? Where certain issues play to a tie, they then come off the table. So one of the reasons Donald Trump wants Republicans to impeach Joe Biden is so he can say, hey, we're both we're both impeached, right? Take that off the table. This is an intriguing issue because Republicans have worked so hard to cement Biden's brand as including age and cognitive ability. That if Donald Trump steps into this issue of his own cognitive ability, now you're a voter who says, well, maybe, look, I would prefer somebody with greater cognitive ability, but I don't see it between the two, or maybe it doesn't matter. That question of equity on issues between contrasts, this could slip in there by November if Donald Trump continues down this path. Yeah, that's a good point. And also vice versa. That is, it may suggest that the White House wants to be careful to have surrogates carry this message, another upside of having Haley in there, for example, rather than Biden in case voters, I think, completely, you know, without justification, but see sort of pot kettle problems, as my mom used to say with Biden making the point. And what about this? You've been watching him pretty closely for a long time. I don't really notice, but the, there are, you know, veteran Trumpophiles who say that maybe it's related, uh, but he's got less like gusto on the campaign trail. To David's point, he'll often repeat himself, and it seems sort of lower energy. Does it seem as if he's losing game a little bit? So this is a different question from cognitive stuff, but is he? Are his ninety-minute stem winders? just less exciting than they used to be. It sure looked that way in the New Hampshire so-called victory speech. Yeah. And I would say, you know, he's kind of a lazy person and all of us in politics, we know it takes a lot of work to deliver a good speech. It's not that easy, even if it's on teleprompter. I hate teleprompters. I would never use them because I, they made me uncomfortable, but some people are comfortable with them, but you really need the, the ability to deliver. And that's true for Joe Biden too. I've seen him deliver recently wonderful messages. And I've also seen him where he's tired and is not as sharp. So this goes certainly for any candidate. But I would say this, this is kind of like an accident waiting to happen. We don't know the next thing Trump is going to say, because talking Nikki, 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 and saying she did not protect the Capitol, that is really scary. And then he said something else. I don't remember it. Maybe any of the others of you remember the exact- Some of them are just incoherent, the death penalty thing, right? About this incoherent thing about institutions, and he couldn't say and death penalty. I mean, that was weird, and he didn't seem to know he had said that. And it seemed to me he was reading that. So that's not a protection. So it's, it is something that you don't know. It could explode, and how the campaign deals with it, and how- can't control this guy because he thinks he knows better than everybody else. And you could see that. That's why he's so lazy. He thinks he's so charming. He's an entertainer. He's going to get up there and do his thing. And um, he does. And the followers of the cult love it. But I think the rest of the people are scratching their heads. And that's why I'm much more optimistic now for Joe's chance, assuming we don't have third parties and so on. And of course, he's now gotten the UAW endorsement. Maybe that steals some of his thunder. Let's just close out here because I want to move to the whole cluster of legal issues. But Lawrence, you said on TV that Biden was the big winner in New Hampshire. And maybe that follows from some of the things we were saying. But can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So he won by a much bigger margin over his challenger. He he had a challenger who got 20% of the vote. Biden got 66. Trump could only get 10, 11 points ahead of his challenger. And so Trump did worse than any candidate in the New Hampshire primary who has been president and is on the ballot, okay? No one's done worse. George H.W. Bush beat Pat Buchanan by more than what Trump beat Haley by, 
But what Pat Buchanan was, in effect at the time, was a surrogate for the Democrats in the sense that he was separating Republican voters from George H.W. Bush. So in November, Bill Clinton you know, was able to get the White House with 43% of the vote and Ross Perot in there taking about 20. And that Perot and Clinton vote, both of those vote columns had votes in there that were separated from President Bush by Pat Buchanan in that campaign. And so Trump stood up worse to Haley than that. And, you know, Joe Biden, the Dean Phillips dream in New Hampshire was the Gene McCarthy dream, right, of 1968, where I'm going to run against the incumbent Democratic president. I would say somewhat more remote than McCarthy. But yeah. yeah. Okay. But, you know, the reason everybody paid attention to McCarthy, and I as a kid in Boston thought McCarthy won because of the coverage, but was because he got, he got 42% of the vote, right? And Lyndon Johnson was a write-in candidacy also, just like Biden. If Gene McCarthy had gotten 20% of the vote, it would have been a very clear LBJ victory. Nobody would have paid attention to that campaign after that. So Biden, really, if you just want to look at it comparatively, how did these two front runners do in New Hampshire? There's just no way Biden isn't the very big winner of New Hampshire on those two columns. And could I say you had to write in his name, right, Lauren? Yeah, exactly. I mean, 66% of Democratic voters said, I'm going to go and I'm going to bring my pencil. I'm going to write in his name. I mean, that's a tough job to ask voters to do that. You know, I mean, that is really tough. Mm -hmm. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we discuss adding the right amount of water to a glass of whiskey without turning it into a whiskey river. The thought of adding water to any golden brown whiskey might bring tears to the eyes of some whiskey drinkers. But for others, adding a few drops of water to your glass has its merits and actually improves and enhances the flavor. The phrase open up refers to the release of the extra flavor you taste by adding those drops of water. And here's a little bit of science that helps reinforce that theory. When water is added to whiskey, it releases the guaiacol, which is partially responsible for the smoky and spicy flavor. When guaiacol is released, it rises to the surface so the aromas are more easily noticeable, allowing your palate to experience the smell and flavor that imparts on the drink. And while there's really no right or wrong way, some say adding a splash of water brings out the best in your glass of whiskey. Of course, going overboard with the water has diminishing returns, watering down the whiskey and proving once again that moderation almost always wins. So the next time you're thirsting for a little experimenting of your own, Stop into your local Total Wine and More for a whiskey selection that suits every budget. And that's a scientific fact. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. I want to at least move to what's been my, you know, weekly concern more and all the sorts of cases because they always, just as every time things happen in law, you think of his political response, there's a vice versa here too. So look, I'll just set it up. Even as he seems to be emerging, as David says, as the certain nominee, you've got Fonnie Willis embroiled in a mess that may really delay the Fulton County trial. You've got Eileen Cannon, apparently, banking on or hoping he is elected and delaying things there. You've got the immunity question kind of freezing the linebackers in the all-important 1-6 trial. He's going to get shellacked in the defamation trial. There is the possibility of the New York trial involving Stormy Daniels. But it strikes me that this was also a week in which a really sort of definitive conviction, something the polls tell us could make a difference, became more remote. We've been talking just about the political dynamic, and except for mentioning that Haley might be hanging in there hoping for a, a Hail Mary from the courts. Do you think that remains an important factor, or is that something as you try to assess the 
cliff we may be driving towards that you pretty much are discounting? The outcomes legally, I don't see how they could matter because, you know, if you get a conviction of Donald Trump, he's going to be on the courthouse steps saying, I'm appealing. This is an outrage. Uh, the Trump voter who was with him before the verdict, I don't see why they'd separate from him if he's going to appeal it and says it's an outrage. And that goes for all the cases, Lawrence, you would say? Every single case, every case. And every case is going to be appealed for years. The verdict is just the beginning of the appeal process, uh, as you know. So I, I just don't see that. I mean, I, I think a health issue is the much more statistically, and it's not statistically likely. I'm just saying I don't see any effect from guilty verdicts. I think you could have health issues that change it. I mean, remember, it's a, it's amazing. I, I got to say, I was shocked at the smoothness with which the Democratic primary campaign handled Bernie Sanders having a heart attack. And, you know, there was a time when if that had happened, the whole, everybody just would have declared it's all over for Bernie Sanders and it doesn't matter if he comes back next week or any of that. And everybody that, you know, the media treated it very respectfully and, and stayed off of it, I think because everybody knew he wasn't going to come in first. And so it wasn't the same thing. But imagine a Trump heart attack in August. He eats enough cheeseburgers to get one. I don't know what that does. Uh, and, and let's just assume he hangs on and he carries it to the ballot box, maybe something in that affects this invulnerable tough guy image, you know, at, at some gut level with Trump voters. Uh, but, you know, look, Trump voters are a mystery to me. But I think you put your finger on a really important point, which is that so much of his appeal lies in some kind of getting away with it. And I think you're right that that invulnerability and lack of accountability he can carry on that image after convictions, but there's you know something pretty uh, definitive about an actual health issue. Lawrence makes a great point about his appealing if he's found guilty. I hadn't really thought of it that way because I've been counting on this because a lot of voters have stated, including Republican voters, if he's convicted, they ain't going to vote for him. But Lawrence makes a really good point that Knowing him and his way of spinning things, he's going to go, proves that I'm the only one protecting you from the deep state and I'm appealing. So I would still hope that you would have some people, uh, you know, not vote for him based on the fact that he was convicted. But the wheels are turning so slowly. That's a whole other conversation, which, you know, Harry, you know much better than anybody that as a lawyer, I always thought justice delayed, justice denied. I'm rethinking whether that's even true anymore. But last point I make about the health consequence, I think Lawrence is right on the point, but I wouldn't only say physical health. I would also say if there is another one of these weird, odd, out of sync speeches where he starts to confuse, you know, people, it, that could also weigh. I don't think that the litigation calendar changes in terms of its issue intensity for voters. I think that's kind of baked in right now. I think a criminal conviction could change things, but who knows which direction? Who knows which direction? Or yeah. you can actually see a jujitsu move where he's convicted and it helps him. We presume the numbers are true, that it hurts him, but who knows in this environment? I think the issue is the economy. It's generally going in the right direction. Secondly, reproductive freedom. But the blinking red light, I think, for the Biden camp is the electoral college math. I mean, we so much approach this in terms of a head-to-head -head horse race nationally. The electoral college math is not good right now for Democrats, and that's where the economy and reproductive freedom could turn that around. And that's the focus on the six states and all the. In fact, uh, to bring in one other legal point that's somewhat, you know, involved in the big and very open-ended Supreme Court case coming up on February 8th. Oh, man, so many things we've just uh, surfaced and have to go much, much deeper on in coming weeks. Thanks very much. We're about out of time. We just have a minute left for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a viewer or make one up, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And this being the week that Academy Award nominations were uh, issued, and the old saw being that politics is, you know, uh, like entertainment, but less charisma, I think. The present company, of course, accepted. The question is, if we were having nominations for political Oscar-style awards and you could make up a category, in five words or fewer, of course, what might it be? 
most intellectually consistent. I think what most voters hate about politics is the hypocrisy. So most intellectually consistent. I'd say best messaging on democracy. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to join that one. I'm with Senator Bucks. Perfect. I was actually on the David plan, except the other way being that we're rewarding them for what they do. So I was going with best barefaced, disingenuous hypocrisy. (laughs) So, all right. Tune in to see if that happens next week. Thank you so much. We're out of time to Senator Boxer, to David, to Lawrence. Hope uh, to see you soon. Everyone check out that 92nd Street Y event that Lawrence is hosting. And um, have a good week. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Senator Boxer, David, and Lawrence. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, one of the very few. So if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And here's some news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, all you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also still email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine, Associate Producer Meredith McCabe, Sound Engineering by Matt McArdle, Our Research Producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our Contributing Writers, Production Assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>